This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favourite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. Who exploded Vivian Stone? Was it Screen Hunk McSalad? Mother's Digest called me dependably erotic. Leading Lady Joanna Shoebags. Oh, you call me dramatic again, I will die! First-time director Wallace Byrne Matravers. I think I'll just keep my clothes on for now. Assistant director Laura Side Salad. If I can help you direct this film, I can certainly help direct your winkle. Technician James Wiggington. You've got a funny way of addressing a man holding a power drill. Or someone else entirely. Listen in to find out... Who exploded Vivian Stone? Acast is home to the biggest podcasts from the UK and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of the Slash Filmcast is brought to you by Casper. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash filmcast and using promo code FILMCAST at checkout. That's casper.com slash FILMCAST and the promo code FILMCAST. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm Jeff Kanata and joining me is... Devinder Hardwar. And we are still without Dave Chen. He will be back next episode for our big Last Jedi discussion. But we are very pleased to welcome back with us, by popular demand, <laughs> so much demand. last week's returning champion, <laughs> Christy Puchko from Riot Material. Welcome back. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> That's right. You people. <laughs> I, I mean, overwhelming amount of feedback saying how awesome you were last week. So we're so glad you were able to to be back with us this week. So to talk yeah, about. Yeah, thank uh, you to everybody that tweeted at me. That was really nice. And some oh. of you gave really specific things about what you like to hear, which is always nice to have some kind of sense of. You know what people think. It was fun. Yeah, it's always yes. good too when people say what they like because I feel like a lot of feedback I sometimes see is what every little thing they hate or dislike. Yeah, their fans. Or sometimes you'll be like, "You're great," and that's always nice. I love hearing I'm great. I yeah. love it. But yeah. it's also <laughs> nice when go. people are like specific and are like, "I like that you said this. This is interesting." <laughs> um, and someone else did let me know that uh, that it was the first time that Tommy Wiseau saw the Disaster Artist was mm-hmm. in South by Southwest because they had heard James Ooh. Franco talk about it on I think Fresh Air. Yeah, I just heard that. Yeah. yeah. That's kind so, yeah. of that's kind of mean. That whole Fresh Air interview is worth listening to as well because you can tell like Franco and his ego, right? You can just hear all of that and him like he was hesitant to even bring Tommy Wiseau on stage. It's a whole thing. Yeah, so I mean, you could see that. That yeah. was, it was like really strange. And like I said, he's at the way end of the stage. Like there's photos mm-hmm. online, and it's like there was no way Tommy was going to get the <laughs> mic. Which I was like, maybe they talked beforehand, and maybe it was Tommy was like, I don't want the mic, which would be against anything I understand of Tommy Wiseau. Yeah. But you know, yeah, it was an interesting night to be a he part br- of. They brought up the real. What was the name of the the gangster dude? Oh, like, I don't know. Chrissy? I don't remember. Chris F. Yeah. Chris R. Chris R. They brought up the real Chris R. Or no, he just stood up and asked a question. And then I think James Franco was like, oh, he saw that Tommy Wiseau was getting a little, like, I don't know, Uh, a little little angry, I guess, too, like, in there. Yeah, it was a a weird mm -hmm. night. I mean, it's South By. There's a lot of weird nights. That's kind of how they roll. (laughs) 
Thank you for that uh, that information. Thank you for all the feedback about Christy, about the show. And remember, you can always send us emails by sending them to slashfilmcast at gmail.com. We appreciate all your feedback, positive and negative, although positive we like a little bit more. Always good. Yes. Uh, we have uh, an interesting episode for you this week. We're going to talk about The Shape of Water, Guillermo del Toro's new film, and we're going to check in on the Golden Globes on their uh, – their nominations, which were just announced recently. But first, we're going to start with uh, what we've been watching. And Christy, uh, I will start with you. You've been watching something that I've been I've been very curious about. Uh, people have been talking about a new documentary on Netflix, right? Yeah, it's called Voyeur. And I have to say, it was something that I avoided for weeks. Like Netflix kept emailing me being like, hey, so we have this press screening for you and you can just go into your screeners. And they made it as easy as possible to watch this movie. And I kept being like, no, because the premise sound horrifying to me. The premise is there is this guy that in 1980 bought a hotel specifically so that he could build a space where he could spy on people. And yeah, I was as just people like, do, I guess. Yeah. As a person does. Why else would you have sure. a hotel, really? Come on. And yeah. Right. And like as a woman, as a person who has to go to hotels for work, I was just like, I am never watching this. This is not something <laughs> I need in my head. And uh, I eventually did because uh, I was listening to My Favorite Murder, which is a true crime podcast I'm obsessed with. And, and mm-hmm. one of the women on that show, uh, Karen Kilgariff, said that it sounds like it's a really sketchy, creepy documentary, but then it's actually really interesting. And that was enough for me to be like, oh, OK, let's do this. So. <laughs> Of course, I waited till a night where my husband was working late because these are the things I do when I'm alone is watch upsetting documentaries. And uh, it's really interesting because it's about this guy who has this motel that he specifically like constructed to spy on people. And uh, he doesn't like the term peeping Tom. He prefers being called a voyeur or a researcher. Right, and, because we don't want to offend this guy. <laughs> right, and that's the thing. The, the documentary starts out, and I was so like already angry because it like introduces you to Gay Talese, who is a legit journalist who has done a lot of different kinds of journalism, and then he's like, "Let me tell you about this guy." And so he introduces us to Gerald Foose, the voyeur, and he keeps calling him the voyeur, and keeps kind of in that way justifying this guy's own vision of himself and like he's legit proud of it right like yeah he doesn't think there's anything wrong with what he did well he knows there was something criminal about what he did (laughs) like he's aware of that because when when they are like well why now like this happened in the 80s why are you talking about this now and he's basically like oh i'm not well you know now that the uh what do you call it the the window where he can be prosecuted yeah statute of limitations yeah that's up yeah right but then why tell anybody at all? But it's because he he legit thinks of himself as like, you know, a great mind who has studied the human condition through the slots of a heating vent. And <laughs> it's 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 really interesting because the first hour I was so angry and I, he's telling his stories and like both the documentarians and Gay Talese just seem to be like, oh, my gosh, this is so crazy. Keep talking. And like their enthusiasm was making me livid. I was literally uh-huh. yelling at my television. I'm I have a very lovely neighbor downstairs and I worry that she thought I was like fighting with my husband or like under attack, but we seem good. I've seen her since then. Well, She's, all you got to do, all you could do, Christy, is just cut a hole in your floor, and you can watch her and find that's out. Such just a say, good it's point. all okay up here. 
Don't, don't <laughs> worry. We're fine. I'm fine. It's fine. Yeah. Um, Isn't yeah, this the story that Gay Talese also got into hot water for, right? Because Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so I didn't know any of that. I had missed all of that somehow. And so everything that happens in this movie, I was like, what? Mm-hmm. What? And But it's interesting because it starts taking this turn where you start talking to people that don't feel as kindly toward Gerald as Gay does. And the documentary starts questioning kind of not just his voyeurism, but also like Talise's reporting and Talise's perspective on the whole thing. And it becomes this really interesting conversation about where do we draw the line? Uh, like, where do we draw the line in, in looking I, at mm, other people's lives? Period. I draw the line before this. <laughs> right? Definitely. But that's what's interesting is because, like, on one hand, you have Gerald, who everybody is generally agreeing did a really creepy, gross thing. And it's like they do not let him off the hook on, like, like you're like, maybe he just watched people. And he goes, look, sometimes it was really hard being up there because you get bored. You can only masturbate so many times a day. And you're like, oh, my God. So We've all been there. Right, they leave it vague. It's not like no, he was just a people watcher. Like no, no, he was totally jerking off to all these people. (laughs) Um, But then it's like then they talk to Talise, and Talise talks about how he watches people and how he has a very like intense interest in people. And they try to make this comparison that at first seems really like it's favoring Gerald, but then ultimately you're like, oh, this actually just makes Gay Talise look like a creep. And it's just really interesting because in the end, I don't think it gives you all the answers you might have about things. But that's kind of the point, because it, as things go along, you start questioning Gerald's story. And that's why Gay Talese got in trouble, because people were like, wait a minute, you didn't even fact check some of the stuff he said. And like, you know, <laughs> wow. it's it is a ride. I just watched it again for the second time because the first time I was so angry that I kind of like was like when it got toward the end, I was like, I don't even know what's happening anymore. Like I was like watching it, but also like still like rage vision. And so I watched it again today and it's really interesting. It's much more like a puzzle box where they're feeding you pieces along the way being like, hang in there, mm-hmm. hang in there. Well, um, I wasn't sure that you were going to come out the other side of this recommending yeah, it, but it sounds right? like you do. I wrote, a, I wrote a review for Pajiba that I think will be live by the time we run this because I, I just it, it's like it's not the newest doc. I think it's been out a couple of weeks or something. I'm not sure when it hit Netflix, but like I just I couldn't get it out of my head. And I was like, mm-hmm. I need to now I need to get it out of my system and tell other people like you're going to yell at your TV, but it's going to be worth it. So mm-hmm. that's my that's my pitch. You're going to yell at your TV, but it's going to be worth it. And again, that's called Voyeur and it is on Netflix. Uh, Devendra, what about you? What have you been watching? Oh, a couple of things. Uh, have you guys heard of Mosaic, this crazy new yeah. project from Steven Soderbergh? It's an HBO yeah. thing he's doing, right? So this is going to be an HBO show that they're going to edit together like a normal show, uh, I think, in January. And you'll see it like a normal TV show. But right now, it's kind of like a narrative experiment. Uh, hmm. So it's an app that you can watch on your Apple TV or iOS device. And it's basically a TV show, but it has branching pathways. So you can choose... To watch, like, um, I think after the first episode, you could start to choose different paths to follow, which mm-hmm. basically give you different episodes with different characters. You can't choose, like, it doesn't affect the outcome of the show, but you can basically change up the order of how you watch it. And it's kind of interesting. Uh, the app interface and all of that, um, it's available for free on Apple TV and iOS devices. So it's pretty cool just in that vein. You know, it's a Steven Soderbergh project. Mm-hmm. It looks like a Soderbergh film. Star Sharon Stone. Uh, Paul Rubens is in it. Garrett Hedlund, like, he has a really good cast. Um, I feel though, like Devinder, like yeah. none of those those kinds of things ever make something better. Oh yeah, like, I know. I know. <laughs> that like choose your own direction. No, I just just 
tell me the story, please, yeah. in the order that I should watch it. Like, I mean, I, I don't know. It's because it's Soderbergh, right? This has been attempted before. Um, I was at Comic Con, I think, back in 2011, when uh, Francis Ford Coppola talked about that crazy thing he was working on, right? The oh, vampire yeah. movie. That, I think we were sitting next to each other. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. Were, we were yeah. sitting next to each other. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it was this vampire movie that he would, he wanted to like take it to different theaters and rearrange the scenes on an iPad every night, you know, kind yeah. of remix the movie every time. <laughs> I forget the name of it. Um, it was with, uh, with, um, with Elf Fanning, uh, I think. Val- next? No. Val-, Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer. Yeah, he was there too. Val oh, Kilmer Twixt. was like. Twix. That was it. Yeah. Oh my God. So anyway, that thing. I, I don't even know if he ever, ever got to go on tour with the iPad, but the thing came out as a movie and it was apparently terrible. So uh, there was that idea. Uh, I remember the Arrested Development creator also wanted to like let you pick and choose like what, whichever episodes you wanted to mm-hmm. for the Netflix season, and he just gave up on that idea. It's this... almost like when mm-hmm. the order you're watching something doesn't matter, it <laughs> means the thing isn't very good. <laughs> yeah, but this is Soderbergh, right? And I'm always interested in seeing his experiments, right? After... You know, it's great that he came back to making movies with Logan Lucky, but I was also fascinated with what he was doing with the Nick on Showtime, or no, Cinemax. And, you know, just seeing him experiment. You know, this is a guy that kind of uh, defined indie filmmaking in the 90s. Uh, I'll follow him through his mistakes and his triumphs. Uh, I've seen the first few episodes of this. It's interesting. Uh, I don't... It's kind of tough to tell what it's about. It seems like it's about a group of people who are trying to... Uh, steal land or a business from Sharon Stone's character, but it's kind of, it's not very clear. It's not like there's aren't really many immediate hooks. I'm just basically watching it for this narrative experiment um, just to see kind of where it goes. And the fact that he has such an amazing cast, I think it's kind of interesting. So just, just wanted to put that out there. If you want some Soderbergh in your life and you want to see like a master filmmaker kind of dabble with new tech, uh, check this out. It's called Mosaic. And how do you find it? Uh, on Apple TV or iOS devices, you could just search for the app in the App Store and you'll get an app. And from there, you could just like, yeah, pick episodes and start, you know, choosing mm. whichever way you want to do it. I haven't heard too much. Like critics haven't really paid attention to this, but I think it's really interesting. So just want to highlight that. All right. Yeah. What else have you been watching? And quickly, I just want to talk about uh, Scott Frank's new Western show on Netflix, Godless. And uh, I love a good Western. I love Scott Frank. And this seems like a good combination. Um, this was a show Netflix was really advertising as being about a uh, you know a town in the West where all the men died in a mining accident. And it's a town basically run by women at that point. So kind of a really interesting inversion on how you typically see Westerns. The show itself actually isn't entirely about that. That's like one subplot over this grander good guy and bad guy, you know, chasing each other uh, throughout the series type of thing. Uh, I I just really dig Scott Frank's work. Um, you know, he wrote the screenplay for, what, Out of Sight, um, Get Shorty back in the day. Um, yeah. I also really liked his films. I like The Lookout and uh, Walking the Tombstones. He's uh, an alumni of my school, so really? I, always, I always perk up when I hear his name. Yeah, he was one of the guys that would, like, come back and talk to all of us when we were undergrads to tell us that you can make it out there in Hollywood. That's super cool. And honestly, like yeah. I, you know, he what has a screenwriting credit in Logan this year uh, and the Wolverine. Like, you know, this is a guy that I just kind of love everything he's involved in. The show itself uh, is interesting. It feels like uh, he's basically trying to do a different type of Western, but it still feels like it evokes like, uh, you know, Sergio Leone films and things like that. Um, definitely more mm. spaghetti Westerns than like John Ford Westerns for me. Uh, but great mm. cast. Jeff Daniels. Um, 
Jack O'Connell, who's been in a bunch of stuff recently, uh, Jeff Daniels and Sam Waterston. So kind of a bit of a newsroom reunion here, <laughs> yeah. which is kind of weird because Sam Waterston is this like grizzled, uh, uh, re- uh, what is he? He's like a ranger, I think. And uh, Jeff Daniels is the bad guy. And he's just huh. like chewing on the scenery. Like, yeah, there's it's so good. Does like, he have a mustache? He, oh yes, he does. Good. I yeah. have a theory that he's always better when he has a mustache. Yeah, it's a uh, <laughs> if you like westerns. Most are. <laughs> I think I wrote about it once, like somewhere in the early days of me being like a film blogger. Mm-hmm. There's like a post where I like go through every movie he had done and was like, "Let's talk about mustaches." <laughs> Let's talk about that. Um, yeah, guys, serious academic right here. There's actual serious <laughs> mustache talk in the show too. Just in the first episode, people are commenting on each other's mustaches. Anyway, it feels like if you're not a fan of westerns, I don't think it's the story thing that'll win you over but it's a really interesting spin on the concept great cast it just feels like a nice uh nice western epic which is kind of nice to see the dialogue's really good too like he just he does really well with the wordplay almost feels like uh like elmore leonard type dialogue in there at times so i'm digging all that if you want a nice western story to watch this holiday season this definitely seems worth checking out and it's called godless godless it's on netflix on netflix yes I have also been watching a Netflix show. Uh, it's one I am a little bit late to the mm-hmm. party on because oh, this yeah. has actually a, a couple of seasons. Uh, but I've been watching a show called Toast of London. So good. Yeah. I love it. I love it so much. I mean, it is it is made for my specific sensibilities. <laughs> uh, I legit never heard of this, and I'm on Netflix all the time. Uh, what I had this? never heard of it either. And I talked about it on the show, Jeff. Come on. You did? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that's how I heard about it. You <laughs> Come on. You told me to watch it, right? Yes. You were yes. like, Jeff, you would love this. Yeah. Okay. So that's how I heard about it. But <laughs> some Christy, somebody told me to watch this, yes. and I don't know who it was, but um, – yeah, it is. It is made for me in so many ways. I mean, it's about an actor who has, you know, varying levels of success, mostly on the low end, uh, <laughs> and has a lot of like inside actory jokes, which you know I I'm a sucker for as somebody who does that and has you know gone to school for that and all that. Uh, it's a British show, and it is very British sensibility, but it is also like ridiculous. The comedy mm-hmm. is goofy in the best possible way and i think it probably would turn off some people but not me Um, i have to say it is very much a matt berry show so if you like matt berry from the it crowd uh from oh he's been a he's the weird goth guy no 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 he is the he's the second he was in the mighty boosh mighty uh, boosh guy yeah if you watch the mighty boosh and that's your style of humor then you're gonna love it i mean mighty portlandia for like one episode too like he's all over the place now yeah okay yeah oh wait he was the second boss the second denim yeah Oh, no, okay. he's not in the Mighty Boosh. Um, mm-hmm. Pardon me. That's my mistake. He's not in the Mighty Boosh. I think, he, uh, yeah, people, they pop up all over the place. So it's the IT crowd I mainly remember him from. Uh, yes. He's Snuff Box. Um, what is he in? I'm just looking at his thing. Uh, hmm. Anyway, <laughs> yes, he's hilarious. Uh, he is the main character who is the name Stephen Toast. I mean, I'll just tell you some of the names of the characters in the show and that will, whether you giggle or not at yeah. that tells you whether or not you would enjoy the show. His name is Stephen Toast. His arch nemesis is Ray Purchase. <laughs> and a guy he always talks to is Clem Fandango. Clem Fandango. Clem Fandango. <laughs> I mean, every character in this show has a ridiculous name, but they're not ridiculous in the way that normally they are in shows. You know, like if a show goes for a ridiculous name, it's never like Ray Purchase, mm-hmm. but that's 
to me so funny. It's a and way show, he says it. It's his intonation. Yeah, like, he's Ray like, purchase. He's he's an actor, you know, and <laughs> a, a stage theater actor. And just every episode has a musical number for no reason whatsoever. Yep. And uh, I'm in. Yeah, it is <laughs> goofy and hilarious and brilliant and absurd. I mean, it is straight up absurd. Like stuff happens that is just in the realm of of insanity. And mm-hmm. but I love it. I mean, it is it is a show unlike any other. And uh, I am so in love. I mean, I, it's a show that you want to quote to people. You know, yeah. like. There's a running joke where he goes and makes some extra money by doing voiceover. <laughs> and it's yes. always hilarious. Like they make him do the word yes over and over and over again. And they they like he can't get it to the to their satisfaction. They keep wanting him to say yes. But also what they're asking is also kind of incoherent at times, yeah. right? Like that that's it's it's a joke on multiple levels there. Yeah. But like <laughs> the way they shoot it, which is he is seated perpendicular to them. Like he's not facing them. He's seated perpendicular to them and has to turn to face them every time he speaks. <laughs> Just that juxtaposition, physical juxtaposition is hilarious to me. It is just absurd and weird and funny. And I don't know. I love the show. It's called Toast of London and it's on Netflix. I think there's two seasons. I've only watched the first season so far, but. Uh, actually, I think there's three seasons. Uh, anyway, I've only watched the first season, but I, I love it. It is so weird and funny. So good. All right. Let's uh, let's check in on the news. We got some uh, Golden Globe announcements, guys. Who loves the Golden Globes, huh? Eh. All right. <laughs> All right. All right. The enthusiasm. I can't hear you. No. Um, Golden Globes happening. Uh, and we got... A lot of stuff that I think we would assume would be nominated. Uh, we got a lot of stuff that we thought might be nominated that didn't. Uh, so we'll dive in. We won't spend a ton of time on this. But um, your best motion picture drama, Call Me By Your Name, Dunkirk, The Post, The Shape of Water, which we'll be t- talking about in this very episode, and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. So I have so far seen two out of the five of those. Oh, really? <laughs> I, got, I got some stuff to work on to get to catch up. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, for best motion picture, musical or comedy, The Disaster Artist, The Greatest Showman, I, Tanya, Lady Bird, and the great musical comedy, Get Out. Now, that was so sure. like, it's funny because we like I've seen people really freaked out that like we were like, how is Get Out a comedy? Um, and I've had I've seen some really interesting debate to this because honestly, I thought it was a horror comedy and I was surprised this was a debate. And it's interesting because Jordan Peele has stepped forward and said that he was not part of the decision. The Mm -hmm. studio made the decision to pitch it as a comedy, but that what it's about is not funny. But notably, that's not saying that it's not a comedy. And he is a guy who came from comedy. But there seems to be an argument about the idea that if you call it a comedy, you're effectively laughing at what he's trying to say. Like, I've seen that argument and I don't agree with that. Right, right, right. You can be a comedy um, with like a social purpose too and a deeper A hundred percent. And on top of that, like I've seen some people saying it's not even a horror movie. And I feel like there's a mm. lot of, yeah, I feel like I, I've, I've listened to some of these arguments. I think they're interesting. I can understand what they're saying. Um, I will go back and forth on comedy. I do think it's a funny movie and I would call it a horror comedy, but um, I'm just really? excited. 
I hundred percent. The movie's trying to be funny. It's I mean it's well, legitimately for one, funny. It has a complete comic relief character. Yeah. Like yeah. his best friend is hundred percent the comic yeah, but... relief character who is commenting on the genre as we go along. There's it a is lot very of movies much a that dark have comic comedy. relief. It, it feels like, like okay. that. Yeah. Here's where it's tricky. It's effectively a horror movie parody, but mm-hmm. not as explicit as like Shaun of the Dead or something. But it is it is part of the genre where I'm going to give a quick listen. Uh, <laughs> when you do genre, there's uh, primitive, st- uh, classic, revisionist, and parody. Parody is the last point, and it's kind of when everybody knows the genre so much that you can set stuff up and then subvert it either for laughs or to kind of poke holes at it. So like Cabin in the Woods is a parody of mm-hmm. horror, not because it's making fun of horror, but because it expects you to know the things it's setting up so that it can comment on them. And I think that's very much what Get Out does. So I think that in that respect, it's 100% a parody. But here, it was 100% nominated, not because the studio necessarily thought it was a comedy, but because they thought they had a better shot. Because right, if right. you look yeah. at that Best Picture drama category, that that is incredibly predictable, with the exception, I would argue, of The Shape of Water. Because The Shape of Water is more genre than that, that category tends to go. I don't disagree with anything you said, Um I just think I'm in the camp of it a little bit diminishes Get Out to put it in the category. I get why they did that because a nomination is a nomination and it's all – this is all positioning for the studios anyway. It's right. all where, you know, where you put your chits. But I, I don't think the movie is – I understand that it is um, commenting on the genre mm-hmm. and, and is that technical definition of parody. But I don't think this – I think – it specifically isn't a comedy. It is It is really genuinely a horror movie that is just smart about how it uses the form. And I think it's. I think it does it a bit of a disservice to even consider it a comedy because, yeah, there's a comic relief character, but there's a comic relief character in every – I mean there's a comic relief character all over the place in, in yeah. films that don't it's, turn the it's movie not into just a comedy. One, though. Like it's – there are funny situations. There's like – just uh, Bradley Whitford's character is hilarious at times mm-hmm. in that movie. While also, I would argue like, the milk scene flat out. Yep. Yeah. But I mean, like, and, and like I said, I think it, I've had the argument both ways, and I think it's totally valid to say it's not a comedy. But I mean, it's also for this case, it's very political. And the fact that Three Billboards is in there as a drama and not mm. comedy is another kind of like, what are we doing? Because like Three Billboards is a hundred percent a dark comedy. Right. But right. that studio thought they had a solid enough trans- chance at John drama, clearly, and they thought they'd be in a stronger position for the Oscars if they were Golden Globe nominated for drama, which is the more competitive category. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, you know, as with all of these things every year, it is, like you said, all political and all just how things are positioned. But it's fun to argue about and it. Also, and- the Golden Globes are worthless. Let's not forget the year they gave, <laughs> uh, what was it? Uh, the Tourist. The Tourist. Best Picture. Yeah. That, that I mean, classic all- film that everyone saw, right? And we all remember. I, to fondly. be fair, I shouldn't talk shit on the Taurus because <laughs> I didn't see the Taurus. Right. But also, I'm pretty confident it's shit. <laughs> I can't say it like on my mother's. I shouldn't say great. Yeah. She'll get real upset. It doesn't even have um, to be terrible. But if good it's name. yeah, it's also right, well, like uh, the snubs this year are a problem too, right? Like uh, pretty yeah, much uh, all ones. the all the women directors kind of shut out. So like no Greta Gerwig love. Which is kind mm-hmm. of astonishing. Yeah. No love for the big sick. That's yeah. the biggest one Come for on. me that, that makes me what crazy, especially crazy? in the, the the comedy category. You know, yeah. I, I love Get Out and I'm glad it got recognized, but 
get out in the comedy category over the big sick kind of makes me upset. Or mm-hmm. I mean, sure. not that I would sub that one out, but it's like the big sick not hey. getting any nominations at all is just a travesty. It's also super wild that all the money in the world has nominations because it's like, <laughs> when did they see this movie? And The Greatest like, Showman? Yeah. What? And, and who was in it when they Wait, saw it? The Greatest it. Showman is screening. It's just that its embargo has not lifted and will not <laughs> lift until I think someone put us on Twitter so I can say this. The embargo doesn't lift until the day of release. Awesome. So just know that. Yeah. I can't tell you anything else about The Greatest Showman. <laughs> well, the best director category that Devendra referenced a little bit, uh, Guillermo del Toro. Martin McDonough for Three Billboards, uh, Christopher Nolan for Dunkirk, Ridley Scott for All the Money in the World, even though his movie didn't get nominated, uh, and Steven Spielberg for The Post. So no Greta Gerwig, even though her movie did get a nomination, uh, mm-hmm. but Ridley Scott, even though his movie didn't get a nomination. So I think that's a little a little odd but mm-hmm. and, and a shame because I think she uh, directed the hell out of that movie, uh, yeah. Lady Bird. I also yeah. feel yeah. like Dee Reese deserves some love for Mudbound as well, which was... Right, because Mudbound got love film. in other categories. Mainly, uh, what, uh, Best Supporting Acting. Actress and yeah. Best Song. Uh, that's, that's a great movie. I don't know. There's a lot they could have gone with there. Mm-hmm. Any other stuff you guys want to pull out of here? Um, I know. was excited that Marvelous Mrs. Maisel got nominated. I know that's TV, mm-hmm. but I watched it because Devendra recommended it. So did uh, I. Yeah, I in fact watched it twice because apparently this is a thing I do now. Um, but yeah, I thought it was really great and really funny. And what's interesting though, because you mentioned that um, there's a point where uh, you suggested the marvelous Miss Maisel like shoves a black uh, mm-hmm. poet off stage. I wonder if that was like in a pilot they changed because in the episode I saw, it's that her like Susie shoves her off stage and she just storms on like right in time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a no, very it's minor a later, point. It's, it's but it was something thing. that I was like yeah. waiting for. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. it was just interesting because I was like, what? And then I was curious if it was she different. She was effectively between... shoved off. So that didn't. That is uh, true. That, that didn't that yeah, rub me so well. Uh, there uh, was it. Uh, Matt Brennan also wrote up a great review of that show and kind of the failures of the of the show at this point too. So that's worth checking out. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the Golden Globes, I guess. Um, get excited about the Golden Globes just as much as uh, <laughs> Devendra and. Wait one sec. Christina. I want to comment on one thing that's crazy. Lego Batman got nothing in Best Animated. That's insane. <laughs> I just want to throw it out there because that movie, like, okay, to be fair, I have not seen all of the best animated films. I didn't get around to Ferdinand because the screening was not at a good time. And the Boss Baby, it's on Netflix, so maybe. There's, getting, there's a Boss Baby 2 coming. You got to get ready because you got to watch that Boss Baby so you're ready for Boss you Baby 2. I've seen the beginning of Boss Baby literally 18 times because my niece thinks the beginning is funny and then she just wants me to rewind it. So, like, the, <laughs> the very opening where Boss Baby gets his suit on, as soon as the suit's on, she loses interest and we watch the beginning again. <laughs> so, I admittedly have a hatred for that movie that is probably unfair. And it's like, you have a Boss Baby. <laughs> oh, God, it's too real. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that is a little bit strange. I think we're going to see Coco win that one, uh, hands down. Although I hear yeah. Ferdinand is actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks really charming. I just didn't get a chance to see it. I mean, I guess we should talk TV before we go o- away from this completely. Uh, Game of Thrones, The Crown, Handmaid's Tale, Stranger Things, and This Is Us as uh, the best uh, television series drama. Mm-hmm. And then uh, musical comedy for best TV is Blackish. Marvelous Miss Mizell, as you said, Master of None, Smilf, which I haven't watched, and Will and Grace. <laughs> uh, um, this must be a typo. Will and Grace can't still be on television. Oh, yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> so weird. 
so yeah, so there's your there's your big TV nominees. <laughs> any any you guys are rooting for no anybody? No good place. There's no the good place. I just don't. I yeah. I cannot recognize a television organization that's not yeah. recognizing how good the good place has been. Definitely. Is Smilf good? Have you guys Smilf heard about Smilf? Good. I've been watching a couple of I've heard of, of it. Yeah. Yeah, you need like what do you need to watch that one? Is it something just Showtime? Showtime. Yeah, yeah, I don't have Showtime. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh let's move on. Um if you want to sleep, man, how where's the sleep transition? I'm I'm struggling, guys. Are, are you Golden Globes will put you from to the sleep. Golden Globe nomination. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> you want to jump up and down on something, you need a mattress for all your excitement for the Golden Glo- Globes. Uh, Casper, Casper, we're so happy they have sponsored us, uh, again, because we have Casper mattresses, right, Devendra? Yeah, love it. Yeah, the Casper mattress is designed by humans for humans. These are perfectly designed, engineered to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. What does that mean in layman's terms? It means that, uh, we sleep better. Uh, I always tell the story that I took the same mattress through college and then beyond, and then I started having weird neck pains, and I couldn't figure out why. And then I got a new mattress, and I was like, oh, that's why. Because you're not supposed to have the same mattress for, like, 20 years, yep. <laughs> which I almost did. Um, so the good news is you can get a super high-quality mattress. You can choose from a selection that will give you the right mattress. And you can have it conveniently sent to your house. You don't have to worry about going to a big – warehouse store and trying to pick a mattress out and you know while these guys are or gals are standing over your shoulder waiting for you and giving you that high pressure sale just (laughs) do it online it's so much easier casper sends the mattress to your house in a really cool package that you open up it comes with a little cool little thing you open the open it with a cool thing and then it unfolds right before your eyes it's pretty great and um and you don't have to even decide to keep the mattress for 100 nights. You get 100 nights to sleep on your Casper mattress risk-free. So you can sleep on it, decide if you love it, and then uh, you can send it back easy. They'll actually come pick it up from you if if you want. And uh, I'm sure you're actually going to love it because we uh, we actually sleep better on ours. Uh, I'm so, so pleased with uh, Casper mattresses. Super great for moving around as well, like an uh, easy mattress to move. For sure. Yeah, that's a great point. Nobody ever really talks about that, but it is absolutely true. So start sleeping ahead of the curve with Casper. I did not write that myself, but I approve of it. Sleep ahead of the curve. You get $50 towards your mattress purchase by visiting our uh, little unique URL there. That's casper.com slash filmcast. And you use the promo code filmcast when you check out, and that'll get you uh, $50 off. That's pretty great. So it's casper.com, C-A-S-P-E-R.com slash filmcast. Use the promo code filmcast at checkout and get yourself $50 off. All right, guys. Uh, that brings us now to our review of The Shape of Water. If I told you about her, the princess without voice... What would I say? Eliza, come on. Eliza, hurry, hurry. That was from the trailer for The Shape of Water. I will read the IMDb 
description. In the 1960s, a research facility, or excuse me, in a 1960s research facility, a mute janitor forms a relationship with an aquatic creature. <laughs> what a so another one of those stories, guys. Yeah. Are you sick of <laughs> seeing all the janitor and mute? Uh, mute janitor and aquatic creature stories. Well, here's another one. Uh, this is, of course, directed by Guillermo del Toro, who uh, is all about that monster monster movie. But The Shape of Water is a love story. I think first of all, mm-hmm. it's a it's a very interesting film. Devendra, let's start with you. What did what was your take on The Shape of Water? Oh, I'm a huge Guillermo del Toro fan, and I love this movie. Um, I think it really evokes the things he loves, right? It feels like he's waited his whole life to make this movie. Uh, He's always highlighted the humanity of monsters uh, and the inhumanity of humans. And that conflict, um, you know, it's kind of reflected in all of his films. Uh, I think in this one, the best, because, uh, you know, the monster is not the actual aquatic creature. It's Michael Shannon, yada, yada, yada. Um, But I love the cast. I love the story. It feels like... A fairy tale. It's like Amelie meets, you know, the creature from the Black Lagoon or something. Mm-hmm. And I kind of love that vibe. And I love genre films that kind of transcend their genres to just do weird and unusual things. Um, it's a beautiful movie. It's kind of sexy, too. I love that they didn't shy away from certain, you know, certain things. Like, it's, I don't know. It felt. It feels like this is a movie that knows it's about love, but also isn't afraid to be a little sexy at the same time. Yeah, it's not a chaste love. Yeah, not at all. Like, not not exactly a fairy tale love. Um, you know, Guillermo del Toro has also talked about this in interviews. I feel like in normal, you know, if you think of about a film like this in the 40s or 50s, right, the main character would be Michael Shannon's character, right? We'd be walking through the front door and, you know, following these, you know, scientists and uh, law enforcement around mm. as they deal with this dangerous creature and oh my god he's after this woman we gotta we gotta save the woman from this creature and it's really interesting to have this inversion where you're following the service people the people who clean up these crazy government facilities and you're like i don't know what's happening here my job is just to clean it up um i found that kind of fascinating as well so all in all like a great turn from guillermo del toro I think uh, it's much more successful than Crimson Peak. Uh, I like Crimson Peak, but that's a movie that I think plot-wise uh, just uh, doesn't click as well as this one. This one has both like great characters and a really interesting plot, so I'm all for that. Christy, how about you? What's your uh, feeling on Guillermo del Toro's films in general? Do you have a favorite of his? or? Oh, man. Um, so I think my favorite is Crimson Peak. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess I, here's the thing. I, I've liked his movies for a really long time. I like how he's always had this sense with monsters that there's a romance to his monsters. And, like, you know, he's been obsessed with J- James Whale's Frankenstein mm-hmm. for decades. And I think in Shape of Water, you feel that most. I think yeah. that... It's really easy. You, I think you could easily make the argument that The Shape of Water is a Frankenstein reimagining. Because it's essentially this story about where the monster is not responsible for what it looks like. And it's not a, it's not an evil thing. It's treated as such. And yeah. so it lashes out. And, you know, instead of finding a little girl at the side of the water, a woman finds him at the side of his pool. Like, And, you know, then you have this not a scientist anymore, but this security man who feels like he understands the world better because, you know, he walks stiffly and carries a big stick. Yeah. A shiny example of masculinity too. Right. That's all this movie is entirely about like 
this idea of what you should be as a man and yeah. how that can destroy you and turn you into a monster as well. Absolutely. Yeah, and you like should, Michael if, as Shannon, a man, you should either wash your hands before or <laughs> right. after you pee. But uh, not, well, it's man. also like this not thing both. where like he pees without like guiding himself. So he yeah. just puts his hands on his hips. There's all these like commentary on this absurdity of his masculinity. But yeah. one that I think is really telling um, and I don't think this is a spoiler, so I'm just going to say, is the way he talks to the main character, mm-hmm. played by Sally Hawkins, he is very aggressive with her, um, both in a way of exerting his power, but also in a way of, like, sexual harassment, frankly. Yeah. And um, I was really excited to watch this movie because, like, I love Crimson Peak, and I will defend it until my last <laughs> day. And, like, I understand what you're saying. I totally get what you're saying. But I feel like people are going to watch Shape of Water and go back and watch Crimson Peak and be like, oh, okay. Like, I think there's a journey here. I do agree that Shape of Water is more elegantly told. But, like, oh, man, I love Crimson Peak and all of its flourishes. But Shape of Water, it is a fairy tale. But it's specifically a fairy tale for misfits. And, like, I mean, I feel like especially this year where so many people have been told in, in no small way by president trump that we don't matter i think this is a really important story for a lot of people because in it you have characters who are people of color you have people you have characters who have disabilities uh you know the main character is a mute or is mute i don't know the proper terminology apologies on that but um she's mute and there's a character who is gay there is a character who is a literal like physical monster Mm -hmm. and it looks at all these characters under the same lens of like kind of you think you know who these people are. You think that they're different from you. You think that they're things that don't you can't that you can push away and you can, you know, whatever, like Michael Shannon does. And I just think it's a really beautiful story about how kind of like fuck what other people say. Yep. You know, like love yeah. is love and all that. And it's 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 I just thought it was really beautiful. And it's so daring because it's like it's it's it is an enchantingly gorgeous movie. And honestly, the score by Alexander Duplatt is just... Mm. Is that how you say his name? Did I say it right? I've never said it aloud. Desplat. I, I don't know. Desplat, maybe. Yeah. And uh, But like two minutes in, I was like, oh, I love this. Because like the, the music feels like a dream. Like it feels like you're underwater. It mm-hmm. feels beautiful. And it lures you in. And then it just tells you this story that it's like... It fumbles a little bit here and there. I will I will completely admit that. But I just love the big risks of this where like he trusts an audience to be like, I'm gonna tell a fairy tale for adults. Mm-hmm. So there is violence, there is blood, there is sex, and he doesn't make apologies for it. And I think I think it's one of the best movies of the year. Yep. I talked about The Shape of Water a few weeks ago when I first saw it. And at that time, if you guys remember, I uh I said that I know this is kind of transgressive for uh, a film movie podcast, but I I've never really loved a Guillermo del Toro movie. Mm-hmm. I really haven't. I I respect him as a an artist and as a visionary. I think the design of his movies and the way that they are shot are all um, masterful. Mm-hmm. But it's never come together as a complete experience for me before. And I've always felt a little uh, embarrassed that everybody seems to be falling all over themselves for Pan's Labyrinth and all these movies that just never landed on me the same way. And Mm -hmm. um, I finally feel like I have that movie in the shape of water. It's so close to being uh, a perfect movie for me. There's just a few, I think, indulgences that he takes that just kind of fall over into the realm of goofy that – 
I think just feel like he can't help himself a little bit. Like he's such a romantic, you know, a capital R romantic yes, very person. Yeah. Yeah. And he, I mean, I saw this movie with a Q and a with him uh, at it. And actually the um, composer was there too, which was hilarious. Cause you're like, the, the score is so great, which I agree with, but all the questions to the composer were like, what, how did you compose the theme? And he's like, I just wanted to feel the sound of water on my face. You know, it's like very enigmatic and like composer. <laughs> right. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I feel like he kind of because Del Toro is such a romantic, like he loves explaining his movies. He loves layering in subtext and he can't help himself but like tell you about it effusively. Right. You know, he just wants you to, to know all of the, the love he put into it. Mm-hmm. And I kind of feel like he couldn't help himself but to go a little farther than was necessary in mm-hmm. of just a few scenes in this movie of like, I think – I understand what you guys are saying, and we'll we'll talk about more specifics and spoilers. But I understand what you guys are saying about it, respecting the fact that it is an adult tale that doesn't shy away from having sex and adult relationships. But also, I think there are some things that could be suggested instead of being explicit that mm-hmm. would have made the the movie make my less less goofy and feel less weird and uh you know like if we're talking about one scene in particular i will fight you yeah well we'll talk about it in spoilers but let me okay. let me just sum up hang my in saying. there friends yeah yeah hang in there <laughs> stay, stay stay tuned stay um, tuned i might fight jeff <laughs> again <laughs> um, <laughs> um but i want to talk about so many things uh, about this movie that that I that are not spoilery that I think are wonderful. First of all, I think Del Toro, especially in the first I don't know twenty to thirty minutes of this movie, it, this is such economical storytelling, such beautifully mm-hmm. exquisite shorthand is established. The way each character in this movie is introduced, we know so much about them with so little expressed so so little screen time and yet so much of who they are is clear Mm -hmm. and that is i think because of his brilliant direction and the way the camera reveals things and the design of the world reveals things and and just small bits of information about the world and about these characters reveal so much and i i just that is masterful filmmaking and to to have such economic economy with, with, uh, time in that way. Also, I love the metaphors of all of the voiceless in the movie and actually having no voice as our main character. And yet all of these characters have no voice and they are really the heroes banding together. And, and I said it when I spoke about this movie a few weeks ago, I really do think Richard Jenkins is the best American actor alive today. I, 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 that he is never not brilliant and he's certainly not, not brilliant in this movie. He's, <laughs> he's spectacular. Um, and is heartbreaking and sweet yeah. and vulnerable. And, uh, he, he, he's an actor who never cares about needing to come out looking good. You know, he will show you all of the warts of his characters and you love him more for that. And I, I just found his arc to be just exquisite and his interaction with um, Sally uh, mm-hmm. is uh, – or Sally Hawkins' character is um, wonderful. And so much of that that feeling of the underrepresented and, and their struggle and, and how 
just like small moments of him doing his work. Oh, just all of that was so great. Yeah, um, he's a painter in this, and it's such a it's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually got to talk to him. The Fox Searchlight Party, he was there, and Doug Jones was there, and Guillermo was there. And I was really excited because I had just rewatched the movie and written my review. And like it was like in, and I was like, we're good. <laughs> like now I can go and geek out a bit. And like Richard Jenkins was so sweet. And we got to kind of like, my friend and I got to go over and tell him how much we liked the movie, but specifically like how much fun he is to watch because, yeah. man. I mean, like, even in, um, oh, my God, what was that movie called? He was in a movie with Justin Timberlake where he played Justin Timberlake's, like, dad with dementia. Oh, and it was know. a comedy. It wasn't, was it Fuck Buddies? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I know I it sounds like that. I'm trying to be, it, it's, it's, it was either, like, Fuck Buddies or Being Friends or whatever. But it was, like, Justin Timberlake and Mina Kou- Mila Kunis are Fuck Buddies. And they're like, but we're not going to get in a relationship. Spoilers, they totes do. But um, in that, Richard Jenkins plays like he's a little bit of comic relief, but also pathos because it's like the thing that Justin Timberlake's dealing with is that his dad is getting dementia and how heartbreaking that is. And there's like literally a scene where his dad, where Richard Jenkins takes his pants off in the middle of a restaurant. And like it's there's just something about him where he can do that and and let you like laugh at the moment, but also cry at the moment. And like you're not laughing at him. And he just has such an amazing ability to allow you to feel so much at once and he brings that into this movie and it was funny because when i saw the trailer there's like the scene in the trailer where sally hawkins is signing at him he's like we can't this isn't even a person and he and she's like well if if we do nothing then you know are we people or i'm Mm -hmm. horribly bastardizing the beautiful dialogue of that scene but like I thought it meant that he was going to be like a man in power because he often plays like, you know, the button up man in power. And in this, he's very much not. And it was really beautiful to see him play a character who is struggling, who is struggling to find a foothold professionally and personally. And I just thought it was really beautiful. Like, I mean, the performances in this just knock me out. I agree. Yeah. And I'm looking through his IMDb. I do not see any fuck buddies. I think it's Friends here. with Benefits. That's the movie. Uh, That's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> fuck buddies was somebody else's movie. They were like two at the same time, and one was terrible with Ashton Kutcher, and one was good. But I do. I I'm reminded just looking over his filmography, which is robust. Uh, I'm reminded how much I love him in Flirting with Disaster. Ah, mm-hmm. oh, that's an awesome movie and an awesome uh, performance. I mean, he he tends to like even Step Brothers. Right. Like yeah. he is just so good at like being the straight man who has to get yeah. angry at these these idiot man children. Like he's great and everything. Let me in. Come on. Yeah. Oh, God. That, yeah, that, and He does. Again, yeah. it's like he he plays these roles that are often thankless. Like this isn't an example of Shape of Water, but like mm-hmm. in Step Brothers, that totally could have just been like that. And then you say the line. So Will Ferrell can be funny. Yeah. And like, no, people like constantly are being like, oh, you know, he's also really good in Step Brothers. And like, <laughs> that's accurate like, there you go yeah. he whole hog. but also uh sally hawkins in this movie just yeah she's awesome phenomenal for not like, not saying a, a, a single word mm-hmm. uh, and she you know there's an argument that she does in sign language that is powerful and mm-hmm. kind of brought me to tears um and even and the other thing i, I learned at this q a afterwards is um she didn't know sign language and michael stuhlbarg did not know Russian before this movie. <laughs> God damn. Which is insane because I was watching it and I literally had the thought when I was watching it, like, wow, how cool that Michael Stuhlbar got to use his Russian in a movie. Because <laughs> yeah. it seems so – like he learned Russian and he learned it in a specific Russian accent. Mm-hmm. It's it's incredible. Yeah. It, well, it, yeah. 
sorry, I was just saying to get back to her, her, like so much of the performance demands that it be a physicality thing, which is really interesting because Mm -hmm. yes, there are subtitles, but so much of her performance is about movement. And like, it's also like, it was funny because I, I, I'm going to bring up my earth girls are easy thing again, but I wrote about earth girls (laughs) are easy not that long ago. And I was like, why are there not more rom-com fantasy musicals? And it was kind of a joke of like, you know, but then I watched shape of water and was like, Oh my God. And like, (laughs) it's, it's more of a rom drum fantasy musical, but there is like dancing. There is actually a musical number And like, what's interesting is the dancing allows us to understand that Eliza is not just a janitor. Eliza is not just the mute girl. Like Eliza is a dreamer. And you see that in the way she like privately dances down her hallway. And you Mm -hmm. see that in the way she hums and imagines the score. And like, there's all these beautiful little elements that they lace in that are so much just about how she moves. Yeah, it feels like a silent movie performance almost, right? It's all about... Movement and I her mean, expressiveness. Yeah. Yes, but I worry about saying that because it's not a theatrical performance. Yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. not pantomime. And yeah. then, then the foil to her or the pairing to her, I guess, is Doug Jones as the amphibian man, the monster of the like quote unquote monster of the movie. And like Doug Jones has been playing monsters, <laughs> I think honestly. Okay, I, I'm fairly <laughs> certain his first uh, like credit was it was either hocus pocus or or um batman returns uh-huh. i think it was batman returns but then hocus pocus was like the first big one because he was more than just like the tall clown yeah, yeah but like he's been doing this for literally years and like he he's the cgi monster he's the he's the ghost in uh crimson peak he's all over the place and it's cool if you ever get to see him talk about this like he has such a true passion for this and it's like you people are going to talk a lot this year about andy circus because of war of the planet of the apes and mm-hmm. i get it fine but like I just get frustrated that Doug Jones gets left out of this conversation because people want to talk about mocap and I'm like, cool, cool. Like he's doing something that gets even more ignored because it involves like prosthetics and things. And like he, so much of the monster is actually what they put on him. Like we talked to him in person and I asked about it because I was just fascinated. And also I'm obsessed with the show face off on sci-fi, which if you're interested in movie monsters, you have to watch sci-fi. It is all about prosthetic makeup and it is like a very fascinating, like it's a reality competition show, but it's one of the ones where everybody's really collaborative and supportive instead of being like, I sabotaged her. And it's like, it's not into that. It doesn't do that. But like, I got to talk to him at the Fox searchlight party and I was so excited because he said that most of it is really him and is really that he said that there's a little bit of cgi so they can do things like like the, uh, eyes. Mm-hmm. Like the eyes but yeah. even like the part where the gills on the side of his neck move he said they that was a real thing that was part of the costume that they could move it had like built in um and it, but it's like his performance is really interesting because you know on its face it seems absurd okay sure a woman <laughs> meets an amphibian man and falls in love. I understand it sounds absurd, but also a lot of us grew up with Beauty and the Beast and we're totally cool with Belle falling in love with basically a bull man. So everybody calm down. <laughs> Giant bear dude. Yeah, or whatever. Right. We're like, no, that's totally feasible because he's a mammal. Like, we all need to get over ourselves. Yeah. Um, I mean, we also... do have sort of a mammal bias. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's all I'm saying is we really need to get over it. It's um... really a question of biology, really. Yeah. <laughs> Well, what I thought was so beautiful in this is that, like, through movement, you like I understood why she was attracted to him. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. It, he yeah. has a carriage that is is exotic and is erotic and is tender. 
And so it was like, also when you look at the men around her, where you're like, you know, like what she's supposed to go with Michael Shannon. Like, yeah. what are we, and I'm not saying that Michael Shannon is not a good looking dude. I think he's attractive, but in this movie, he is a wacko nut job with like cranky black fingers because he's it's a whole thing. <laughs> he's like diseased. You don't want to be near Michael Shannon. So um, yeah, I thought it was really beautifully told, and I like that it trusted the audience to go on the fantasy ride and and you know hit a peak that is. Mm-hmm. I think pushing audience patience, but I'm glad they went for That's it. That's what I usually Let's... love about Guillermo del Toro films too, right? Is he generally trusts the audience, right? He doesn't really hold your hand and you just are either with these stories or you're not. And if you're not too bad. And exactly. That's kind it's of funny off-putting. Yeah. For some. This is a, an anecdote about the first time I ever met Guillermo del Toro was at Comic-Con New York mm-hmm. when he was there for Troll Hunters. And it was a round table. So, like, basically there's a bunch of people talking and blah, blah, blah. But at the very end of the, the interview, I just very quickly wanted to say, by the way, I just wanted you to know that I think Crimson Peak is wildly underrated and a beautiful <laughs> film. And um, he he looked at me right in the eye and went, I agree, and then walked away. <laughs> That's and I awesome. was like, good. Like he, I think he he knows what his movies are, and he doesn't apologize for them. Yep. And it's like, you know, you can you can like them or not, but like he's made what he made meant to make. I definitely think he loves his movies more than anyone else, <laughs> which is fine. <laughs> yeah. For for she good should. or ill, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, all right, let's move on uh, now to spoilers because there's a, there's still a lot to dig into with this one. So spoilers for The Shape of Water starting now. Now you're looking for the secret. Can I see this coming? No. But you won't find it because, of course... You're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. All right, guys. Uh, before mm-hmm. we get into where Christy and I will inevitably argue, <laughs> let's talk about the end. Um, what did you guys think of how this movie ends? We, uh, we have our main character who is taken down into an underwater world and her scar that had been the reason that she couldn't talk is magically transformed into gills and she can live a life underwater. I assume she was always from the water, and that's why she couldn't talk. I think, yeah, oh. it, could, it works either way, right? They say they found her by the water, right? Yeah. Oh, you and, think and that she was one of those beings? I think so. I think or she's some, something some sort like of that. Of, yeah. Some. some sort I did not of get that. I thought he was a god, <laughs> this like water god that bequeathed the the ability on her to breathe underwater, so that they could be together. But, oh, that's interesting. I mean, that's that's a potential reading. I yeah, thought yeah. as soon as. I saw the the lines on her neck. I thought, okay, so those are going to be gills. And then they said she was born by water and she can't talk. And I thought she doesn't fit in this world, but she fits in his world. Yeah. So mm-hmm. my understanding was that she was always meant to be underwater with him. Interesting. And Interesting. That, that kind of feeds into the idea of them, like just, yeah, being more meant to be together and the whole kind of star-crossed lovers thing. I mean, you could read it as him being a god because he can literally he- heal anything, right? Which is another mm-hmm. cool, fun underwater power. <laughs> um, but yeah, the fact I think given what we see in the movie, it seems like she is originally from there or something like that. Hmm. Yeah. Because notably, he doesn't like the other thing we saw him do was heal the scar or heal the wound on Richard Jenkins' arm mm-hmm. and bring his hair back. It wasn't like he <laughs> like you know was like and now you have a fin on your head. You know what I mean? It was like right. stuff that like 
he was he was like restoring him. Yes. Yeah, but I I will I'll push back on this a little bit. I'm just coming to this right now because I'm just considering your guys's take just now. But I I think it it diminishes the movie slightly if that's the case because then they really weren't from two different worlds that was bridged by love. It, it's not Romeo and Juliet, right? It's it's she's kind of just finding her way back to where she was always supposed to be rather than this transgressive thing. Well, that's that... just a different view of romance, though. Like, mm-hmm. if you think of, like, um, think um, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, like, origin of love, the idea that, you know, we were always meant to be with the person, but you're broken apart so you can find each other. Yeah. It's just a different idea of romance. Mm-hmm. Okay, fair yeah. enough. I, I think that's a valid interpretation of the movie. I I just prefer to think of it as this this thing she gets to do rather than this thing that was taken away from her and just returned to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know why, why that seems more beautiful to me. But I think that does. feels more cla- like that's more classical fairy tale story. Whereas this is a little more, I don't know this is a different type of romance. We don't typically see reflected in fairy tales these days. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Christy, let's uh, let's get into it because uh, I suspect you are. Let's going talk to... the sex scene. Yes. yes. Uh, yeah. I thought so you it didn't was like the sex much. scene. I did. I thought it was goofy. Okay. Well, I mean, it's a inherently stage. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Inherently yes, because it is a woman having sex with the amphibian man. I understand <laughs> that. But I actually really thought the way they choreographed it was really beautiful. I thought the frankness in which they shoot Sally Hawkins' naked body was really lovely because mm-hmm. instead of like. A lot of times you, uh, you know, have this sense of male gaze when a woman is shot where the whole, instead of it being a woman owning her sexuality, it's more like guys, boobs and tits mm-hmm. and, uh, and like, look at that ass. And like, but that's boobs not how, and tits. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, because yeah. there's usually like repeated shots. Yeah, yeah. There's like repeated shots. Like it'll be like, it'll be a close up or it'll be like a pan shot that just has to get a little nipple in there or whatever. Right. And it's like, clearly it's meant to titillate the audience. And I, while I think this is a sultry film, it's not cutting her into pieces to allure us. It's, mm-hmm. it's very much being like, this is her body. And I think right. they introduced that initially when she masturbates in the very beginning of the movie. And like, right. it's just here she is and it's a frankness and it's just like, you know, it just it deals with uh, sexuality in a way that feels far more. Uh, it doesn't feel particularly American because we're yeah. we get kind of prudish about this thing. That, that but feels I like that. a nice surprise for parents that uh, <laughs> let their kids watch this movie. So, so far, so far, we're in complete agreement. Yeah. I don't disagree with any of that. Cool. And so then they approach each other. And I love the frankly, the fantasy of the idea that you could flood your apartment like that. <laughs> right. Like I, I like I was like that is the most romantic flooding of a bathroom I've ever yeah. seen. <laughs> yep. Um, but yeah, no, I thought I thought it was really lovely, and I thought it's very much about they make it almost like a dance. Like they approach each other like dance partners. They embrace, and even in the water, they're in this kind of. It's almost like they're slow dancing at a school dance. Mm-hmm. And like you know, it's not explicit. It's not you know I don't know. Like we don't get up close and personal. And like later when they explain the biology, it's it's a little tongue in cheek. Uh, with a yeah. hand gesture that I thought was pretty funny. Too much, yeah, I, I think. But <laughs> I want to know, we didn't, Jeff. I want to know. Like, I need to know that. I needed to know. Like, we because we've seen his crotch. I need to know. Yeah. I need to know that. What I just needed to know. I'm an adult. Uh-huh. I need to know how things. We also work. know fish. You know, fish don't typically uh, breed the way uh, mammals do. So, how, how does this work mechanically? Yes, that's a pure. That's I, a great Guillermo del Toro moment, by the way. Just give us a little hint of how it works. 
Exactly. She, yeah. She wouldn't be curious about that before st- uh, initiating the said moment. I mean, you, well, you I mean, go with it. You're going with it. Yeah. Like I don't know how you sign that. She she just kind of just... jumped in and she hoped uh, the situation ended <laughs> up in her all... favor. Yeah. yeah. Hoped this is like uh, the Fry fair. episode, uh, the Futurama episode where Fry gets married to a mermaid. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Saying, then, you know, no, I've seen some. I've seen some fish with some spikes places that I wouldn't suggest, and <laughs> the weird fins. Play, I don't know. I'm just saying. I, I would. I would have. I would have been more thorough in my. In my. In my. It's the heat of the moment, before. Jeff. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. I thought it didn't bother me. I thought it was really sweet and romantic, and like I, I like the idea of of like their their moments like spilling into the real world in mm-hmm. a way of like, you know, that the dream, the spell is kind of broken because it floods the theater. And and... Of course she lives above a beautiful theater, by the way. Oh like, my God. I, damn you. Game oh. Yeah. Yeah. That, so good. that shot that was of a real the... theater in Toronto. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. The shot of the, of the creature standing in the middle of the aisle, just staring <laughs> at the movie was so great. Yes. Oh, like man. nobody else. In I that mean, movie they theater. have that in the trailer, but I thought that would be a dream sequence mm-hmm. or something. And the fact that it was a real moment in the movie, I was just, I was so elated because what I thought was interesting in the trailer, it makes it seem like most of the movie is going to be the heist of getting him out of the, out yeah. of the laboratory. Mm-hmm. But then in the movie, like he's out of the lab and you're like, there's still so much time left. <laughs> and like, I was really excited because it just felt like, well, we've just cut loose. Like, what are we going to do? And, like, it was just so, like, it felt like there was this amazing spontaneity now because we've hit the end of what I expected from this story. Now what? Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I agree I, with know. that. And I love I love that the monster is, in a, in a very del Toro way, the monster is still dangerous and scary even after we've liberated him and we feel like we finally got our two leads right. together and we, there's just all going to be love. Like, he eats that cat. and poor cat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you feel like, oh, this guy, this is, there could be problems here. This is, <laughs> this is not good. Um, yeah. And I love that, that touch of letting there still be this lurking danger. Uh, and I guess, I, you know, I guess ultimately my, my argument, if there is one in, in this, the sex scene thing is really more of a ta- personal taste issue. I just thought it came across as goofy. It just, yeah. it didn't, in a, in a movie where I was totally in, totally invested, totally dug these characters and felt like this universe was beautiful and magical. And I was just so invested. Then it just, it, it felt like it pushed me out because it oh. got a little self-indulgent and just went to this okay. place of goofiness for me. First off, self-indulgent is on brand for Del Toro. <laughs> right, right. For that sure. That is his jam. But secondly, I feel like if you had the amputated fingers, if you had like the spray of blood Mm -hmm. that they find outside the laboratory and then you don't have the sex scene, it plays into like an American (laughs) ideal of like, well, like we can have all the violence we want, but like, let's be very subtle about sex. And I just like that. He was like, nope, this is my movie. And they have sex. They have sex. And also it's really tastefully done too. like she approaches him in the tub and she pulls the curtain, right? We don't see anything right. explicit. And then the only other thing we see is them floating together in this beautiful embrace. Like it is, it is more like sex as, you know, portrayed in like uh, romantic paintings or something like it's an embrace. Yeah. It's not like we barely even see a physical act between them. It's really like on the poster, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and not even that really beautiful one they announced that they released as a teaser where it's like the drawing. Oh, my mm, God, that drawing. So good. It was as soon as I saw that, I was like, I'm going to love this movie. And I love and I was just so freaked out. So good. And Richard Jenkins reaction to everything once he figures yeah. out what's happening. Like that's. Uh, yeah. Just great. Great yeah. character work. That's exactly I, I also, what that character though, would do. I know you guys are going to fight me on this one, too. But I also thought the black and white 
musical number was a little goofy. Mm, and on the nose, like <laughs> like on the nose. On the we, nose. We get, we get, we get that. We understand. Like we don't need her to suddenly have this singing voice and be in this. We get all that. We the, the movie. It doesn't. A musical number, right, is supposed uh-huh. to be the moment when characters can't possibly express what they're feeling except in song. And I, I felt like these characters had all been so eloquent without using any words at all. And we didn't need to even go there. It just, again, and I but know... They, they explicitly point out that it's hard for her to communicate how she feels to him. Like, she mm-hmm. brings the card and stuff. And yes, through, through I would say, the lovemaking, there is that expression but now it's that moment of saying goodbye and like, how does she communicate to him all that he's meant to her? And it's, I thought it was beautiful because in this movie that is a fantasy, they give her a moment that is her fantasy Mm -hmm. and she gets to live out her movie fantasy, which I thought was like, it's so next level and it's so extra. And I get that. But like, (laughs) I, I just like, I don't know, man, we got to watch a monster do like a beautiful waltz. Like I <laughs> want that. I'm so glad that's in a movie this year. Yeah. It feels like a miracle, Jeff. I mean, come on. Like, yeah. I, I don't, I can't imagine how many other directors would give us something like this, but also how fitting it is for this movie, right? It gives her a, you know, we hear her and we hear her thoughts where we couldn't outside of this fantasy. And also like, I love that in that sequence, right? Uh, in the real world, uh, side of that like he's just sitting there eating like he has no clue mm-hmm. what's happening like and it's all about like in relationships where you can maybe be way more into somebody than they could ever be into you or they can never quite understand you like I, it does hit a lot of levels that are quite interesting i think yeah all right mm-hmm. i just didn't think it was <laughs> I, I thought it was again those i mean i understand your argument moments. that it's like it's just you know like if you find del toro stuff goofy of course these are the things that you're like come on and i get that mm-hmm. i get it but like for me i think that's why i like his stuff so much and it's not i don't like all of his stuff on the same level but like man i love a big swing and like mm-hmm. del toro doesn't know any other kind of swing and yeah. like that's what's so cool and the fact that like this movie is getting this kind of attention it feels like I think this movie is a love letter to misfits and the fact that it's being embraced, I think speaks to the fact that everybody feels like a misfit sometimes. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, totally. Yeah. But I to have this embraced, that. I feel like it's like everybody gets to have that moment of like, I'm okay too. And like, I just, I thought this movie was just astonishingly beautiful. And I feel like, especially we're in this time of year where we're getting these movies that are so predictably getting Oscar attention and, and award season attention. And like, you know, like you're getting the darkest hour, you're getting phantom third, you're getting the post. And it's not that these are not good movies. It's just that of fucking course they're getting the attention they're getting. But then you have this, I looked it up. Del Toro had never been nominated for a golden globe before, except for best foreign film for Pan's labyrinth. Mm -hmm. Right. So his nomination for director and for best picture is huge. It's showing that, like, people are actually being, like, they're thinking of him beyond, oh, he's the genre guy. And, like, I hate the genre guy is, like, an asterisk next to it as if, like, yeah, no, he makes horror movies well or he makes monster movies well or he does fantasy well. Like, those are incredible methods to tell stories. And it drives me crazy how every year when we get to this time Mm -hmm. where everybody's doing top tens and everybody's doing, like, award season stuff, we favor things that are, like, straight drama or biopics or whatever and act like they're more important movies or, like, they're harder to tell. But then you watch something like this and it's, like, 
there are such big swings. There are so many places where the audience can be like, I am out. <laughs> and he went with it. And like, I, that's what's so exciting to me is to watch what I feel is a big risk payoff. Mm-hmm. He's an artist who wears his heart around his sleeve. And I fully mm-hmm. respect that about him. Like completely. I, yeah. I agree with you guys. I agree with you guys. And I don't want to come off like I didn't love this movie, but I felt like I was eating an amazing chocolate cake and I was enjoying it. And then the chef went, let me just add a big glob of more chocolate. And I was like, no, I don't need that more chocolate. He's speaking my language. I love it. Give me all the chocolate. chocolate. It's now it's there just, is it's... no such thing as too much chocolate. <gasps> oh I, my I, god! I hear I what you're saying, Jeff. I also feel like to get to the goodness, like to what we see in here, I think sometimes, yeah, people, artists like uh, Guillermo del Toro, have to over overcompensate sometimes. And I'm usually fine with it, right? I'm in line with his vibe. And I think this is probably one of his more accessible films, right? I still have the arguments with people about Pacific Rim and why that movie is fucking phenomenal. Uh, people don't seem to agree. Whereas this one, I think, is a much uh, it is a much more palatable take, um, even if it's a weird premise. Anything else you guys want to talk about while we're here in spoilers? Uh, any moments that <laughs> resonate for you uh, beyond what we've discussed so far? Oh man, I think the the entire heist, just the way that went down, was kind of fun. Mm-hmm. That's all. I, I just like the way it was done, and it was really, really quick and well done. Um, but yeah, it all also went more smoothly than I expected too. I did expect like them to spend longer trying to get him out, like as you were saying, Christy. Yeah, I I just think that everything about this was really lovely. Um, I especially like Michael Shannon in the villain role because. Um, he really digs in there and, and like is not afraid to be detestable yeah. and is not afraid to play the heavy. And it's kind of cool because like he's a smart actor. Like if you've ever read interviews with him or, um, you know, paid attention to kind of his filmography, mm-hmm. like he knows what he's doing when he picks movies. Um, and it's very interesting. Like I feel like he came into this knowing exactly what he wanted to say. And, um, I don't know, man. It's, it just, it knocks me off my feet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He's great in it. He's disturbing and he really goes there. It's uh, and all that black finger stuff is just so, so wrong. Yeah. I, I love really that. We got wonderful a brief detail. We get a brief glimpse of his family life too. It is so cookie cutter. 1950s, like perfect little family, two kids. Well, I love and, like the most housewife. of the time you get when uh-huh. in a character like that, you get, like this horrible family yes. life, right? Yeah, and I yeah, love yeah. that he's got the perfect wife. He's got the, the nuclear family. He's yeah, got the lawn, everybody loves him. A beautiful and, car. He's yeah. miserable and unfulfilled at right. the same yeah. time. Like that's and all so whose fault is it? Yep. It's everybody that's not like him. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like I wrote about that. I wrote about that in my review for for Raya Material, saying mm-hmm. like it's purposely set in the Cold War for era for a very specific reason because it's this time where people are being like, you have to behave in this way because if you don't. You're like threatening American, the American way. And it's like Del Toro knew what he was doing. This is a very clear commentary. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. And I also want to do a shout out to Vanessa Taylor, who co-wrote the screenplay with him, because mm-hmm. I don't know how the two of them collaborated or who did what. But I think it's a really elegant screenplay and that that has a lot of varied voices in it. And like, you know, no, no, like it's not, you know, the characters all come from very different perspectives. And I think it comes across really beautifully. Mm-hmm. He mentioned in that Q&A that I attended that uh, everyone assumes that because he paired with a woman that 
she sort of wrote the lovey-dovey stuff and he wrote the monstery stuff and he said it was the exact opposite that he was <laughs> well, writing all the like romancy schmaltzy stuff and she's like no no it needs more it needs more scary monster in it and then the fingers get bit off <laughs> yeah exactly um I, for me the whole movie lives in that um that argument that uh she has with um with Richard Jenkins' character, it, it, it with silently and it forces him to say the words back to her that she's mm-hmm. signing. Oh, God, that scene I think is a great piece of cinema. It mm-hmm. is just a beautiful something you've never seen before, and is powerful and wonderful and beautifully acted. It's yeah, this is a very very beautiful movie, and I I wish. I could be full throated in my praise because I just it just diminished slightly in in two scenes, but um, but mostly a, a wonderful, beautiful film in my opinion as well. So we all recommend The Shape of Water, <laughs> uh, which uh, which is in theaters now, and that wraps up our episode. Uh, Christy Puchko, thank you so much for being with us again. We'd love to yeah, have you. Yeah, guys, it's a blast. Where can people find your work on the internet? I write all over. Uh, I write daily at pajiba.com and I write reviews for a bunch of different places, including Riot Material. So if you want to keep up with me, you can find me on Twitter at Christy Puchko. That's K-R-I-S-T-Y-P-U-C-H-K-O. And I post all kinds of stuff I write about there. And you can check out my career highlights at decadentcriminals.com, which has all of my reviews and all of my interviews and anything I'm writing that I'm particularly excited about. Very, very cool. Devendra Hardwar. How about you? Where can people keep up with your work on the internet? Oh, you can find me on uh, Twitter at, at Devendra, and I write about techandgadget.com. And I'm on Twitter at Jeff Kanata with two N's and one T. And I have several other shows. Um, the one I'm going to mention this week, actually, is a brand new show that just debuted on Hulu. Uh, I'm hosting a show on Hulu called Defining Moments. There are two episodes as of this recording that are available now. Uh, it's a show all about esports, but it's, uh, I think, an accessible one, even if you don't know anything about esports. It's about defining the moments of esports, what makes them cool. It's kind of like a ESPN 30 for 30, but for esports. And I'm pretty proud of it. So check that out. Uh, go to Hulu and search for Defining Moments. Give it a watch. Let me know what you think. All right, guys, that's it for this episode of the Slash Filmcast. We will be back. I don't even think it's going to be a week. We're doing an early early review of The Last Jedi uh, featuring the triumphant return of our Jedi, Dave Chen. Uh, And uh, that should be coming at you, I think, in mere days. So get excited for that as we are to record it. But until then, we're out. And the movie's coming out Cause you know that it's the thing worth talking about